Today we're going to be reading, um, we're going to be starting Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. It reads, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by someone greater than themselves, and for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. But God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that though that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in high school, my mother and I had this running little thing that was going on. For some reason, the automated portion of my clothes getting washed and cleaned and folded and set on the end of my bed, that part was working. And the part that wasn't was them making it into a dresser or being put away somewhere. And we kept having this discussion about who was at fault. And... Um, my mother was convinced it was me. And looking back on it, uh, my wife would agree with her uh, most definitely that it was me. Um, and so it went from there, just the clothes on the edge of the bed, to just all sorts of stuff in the room. You know, it was just a messy place to be. And so um, we battled for a while. You know, mother would, when she couldn't stand it, would just kind of shut the door so she didn't have to see it. Um, but one day when I was looking around and realized this place is just awful. I mean, there's everything everywhere and the bed's not made and just stuff. And so, um, I knew I needed to clean it up and I guess it was, uh, an early case of conviction that I, uh, wasn't quite tied to the Holy Spirit just yet. Um, but I understood I needed to clean it up, but I had somewhere to go and I don't even remember where it was. And it was probably something that I had to go do practice or something. It wasn't like I was just going to do it for fun. And so I wrote my mom this note, and I basically said, I know the place is a mess, and I promise that as soon as I get home from whatever it was I was going to, I will clean this up. And so <clears throat> when I got home, I went in there, and I looked on the note, and my mom had written a return note on the bottom of my note that said, seeing is believing. Um, <laughs> and, and that was you know one of those early instances where I realized promises kind of, you know, relative on how much they mean. Um, a lot of it has to depend on who makes the promise, right? A lot of it has to depend on whether they actually see things your way. And there's all sorts of stuff that goes on with promises. I mean, when somebody promises you, they go beyond just telling you something. They promise you it's true. Does that actually cause you to increase your level of belief in what they're saying? I mean... Do you, I, I don't even know how much stock I take in making a witness promise in court that they're going to tell the truth. If this person has decided they're going to lie, won't they just lie to me when they tell me that they're going to tell the truth? What does the promise actually do? When you hear somebody take an oath of office, 
How many of you are sitting there going, wow, I really know because what they're saying right now, they are definitely going to do what they've said they're, they're setting out to. I mean, oath-breaking is so common these days, it's almost like, what, what's the fuss all about? Why bother? I surely don't understand the point of making someone invoke a spiritual deity making someone swear to God when it is quite obvious from their life that they really care nothing about what God has to say. What is the point of having them swear to that? And, and when the sworn statement doesn't feel like enough, ever since we were kids on the playground, we've resorted to other things to up the ante. You know, I don't know how many of you remember pinky swears, okay? Like, what the heck is a pinky swear and why does it make any difference? I mean, human spit, you remember that one? I mean, come on, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, okay? That really going to increase your level of confidence in what I'm saying? Even blood, you remember that one? That was the scary one. Somebody said, let's take a blood oath. <laughs> it's like, yo, your blood and my oath, that'll work, okay? The Apostle Paul had some folks trying to kill him in Acts, and they all took an oath they weren't going to eat or drink anything until he was dead. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for the outcome of that little story. Okay, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount actually is talking about speaking promises to God, making oaths to God. And he basically just says, don't. Just say yes or no. Just say the truth. Our courts today have actually kind of come into agreement. Witnesses now are only asked to affirm that they will tell the truth and to acknowledge the fact that if they don't, they could be charged with perjury. And so the real essence of that is just saying, are you going to tell the truth? And somebody says, yes. With all this mixed information and all of our past experience being so jumbled when it comes to oaths and swearing and promises, what are we to conclude when God swears? I mean, why does he swear? I think the preacher of Hebrews answers three questions, and I want us to consider these today. What's the purpose of the promise? What's the probability of the promise? And who is the person of the promise? All right, now, I don't like that second one, the probability. I just couldn't come up with a better P word. So I'm just going to go ahead and fess up. I did the preacher thing and I put you some P's in there, but I don't, I'm not really crazy about that second one. My name is Kevin Perry and I get to be the pastor for um, shepherding here at New Eden. Get to serve alongside Joel, who's the one who's normally in this position on Sunday mornings. But I thank you for this opportunity. I'm going to just go ahead and tell you that I, I met a fellow named George Guthrie um, years ago when he was teaching at a college in Jackson, Tennessee, came down and, and did something for us at our church. He later wrote a, um, an application commentary. He's basically spent his entire life studying Hebrews. And so a number of the thoughts that uh, I'm going to bring out this morning come from him. So a little review of where we are in this sermon. You remember, we've been, we've been talking about the author and we've been calling him the preacher and it's wise because the whole book is kind of like a sermon. But when you look at sermons, 
preachers are known to take sidebars for a minute. You know, they're like, they got a direction they're headed with you. They want to get you there, but they step aside to fill something in. Maybe they're trying to explain why this makes a difference or why it's important that you understand this. And so that's essentially what's going on here. If y'all will remember back in Hebrews 4, uh, around verse 14, the preacher starts in on a conversation about Jesus as high priest. Okay, and so then as he's kind of opening up into his topic, he's just getting warmed up when it kind of hits him that you guys are really going to have a hard time understanding what I'm talking about. Okay, because you're really immature in your faith. So let me give you some warnings about immaturity in faith and recognize this because when I get back to my subject, when I get back to talking about Jesus as high priest, I want you to come to an understanding of why this is important. And right now you're a little bogged down in some, some stuff that's infant level stuff. It's milk level stuff. And so he goes off. And so now he's, he's gone through the uh, exhortations and the warnings that he gave. But now he has this issue of, well, I went off on this rabbit trail to kind of explain this and give you a little understanding of why it's so important that you understand this next piece. I got to get back to the next piece, though. So our, our passage this morning is like the transition. Okay, we were off the rails for a while talking about something else. We're coming back onto the rails, trying to get to the point that we're talking about Jesus as high priest. And he decides to fill us in even more on how this came about. What, what caused it? So <coughs> he concluded last week's passage that Joel presented, um, pointing to the promises that the hearers had. So let's, let's go back and pick up uh, verse 11 and 12 from last week, just so we can kind of orient ourselves. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. So having brought up this topic of promises, the first question is, What's the purpose? What's the point of the promise? Why do it? So verse 13 is essentially some commentary on God's actions to help us understand motive. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. See, if there's none greater to swear by, then why swear at all? I mean, it obviously was not for God's benefit. That's where we get confused sometimes because generally when we're swearing, we're swearing for our benefit. I need you to believe me. God does not need me to believe him. God is telling me the truth and it is what it is. So the only reason he could be swearing an oath if it was for the benefit of the hearer. And so his motive wasn't for himself. He didn't need Abraham's trust. He wasn't trying to manipulate Abraham into believing him. His motive for wanting Abraham to trust was for the benefit of Abraham. The promise God was making was he was going to place Abraham in this position where he was forced to trust God. God had a lot of blessings for him. And if Abraham listened and obeyed and followed in what God told him, then the blessings would come his way. And if he did not trust, then he would not obey. That's one of the things that we have to remember. If we're finding that we're not obeying, 
We really need to answer a question that comes before that, and it's what's causing you not to be able to trust? I mean, intellectually, you got it all worked out in your head. You know this is better for you. But you're not going there, and so there's a trust component that's missing. Abraham believed the promise. Listen to what God is declaring about Abraham in verse 14. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. Now, one of the things that we got to remember is that when God said that, Abraham didn't just poof, look around, and there were millions of people standing around him that were all from him. Okay, what God said was going to happen did not happen instantaneously. There's so many of us, myself included, who from time to time, we ask and, and we really, really want to trust, but we really want it to happen right now so the trust doesn't have to last all that long. Let's just, just get there already. But Abraham had a while to wait. God guaranteed it based on two I statements that I, God, will do this. He made it clear that what was to come was going to be his personal work and it was going to be secured by who he is. Abraham was 99 when that promise got made, the, the first one. All right, and portions of the promise were completed during Abraham's lifetime. And portions of that promise got completed after he was gone and in the other texts of scripture that we read. And what we have to realize is that promise is still unfolding. Now, we're going to get to chapter 11 in Hebrews and realize that that promise goes right on up until today. And it's going to keep going until the very end. Verse 15 helps us understand that there was two components to Abraham's response to this promise. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. See, promises by their very nature demand patience. I'm promising this to you because it's not going to happen right now. It's coming in the future. And so you're not going to need to hold on to this promise until it comes. See, <clears throat> having patience is not a product of persevering effort on our part. Now, I, I was reared that way. That's what, that's what I was told patient was. Patience was something that you practiced, and you practiced, and you practiced. And if you practiced long enough, you'd really get good at it. I'm just here to tell you, for my life, I don't know about for yours, but for my life, it doesn't work that way. Okay? I'm patient based on what I believe. If I got zero doubt that what has been promised is coming, I don't have a problem being patient. It's, it's when I get to doubting whether or not it's actually going to happen that I begin to have a really hard time with patience. And so that means that if I'm not filled up, if I'm not so open to the Holy Spirit, that I'm just walking in the fact that all this is just a reality that's just not here yet. If that's not where I'm at, then impatience is what will set in. Patience is a fruit of God's spirit being unimpeded in me. It's just what happens. It's what affirms to me that, hey, I must be in a pretty healthy place with God because, you know, the world keeps asking me, how in the world can I be so patient? And I keep wanting to tell them the obvious answer. Jesus, I believe. I bought in. Promises, if believed, provide hope. 
Biblical hope is not the same we, word that we use in daily conversation. Generally, we say we hope when we just mean we wish something would happen. You know, I hope this comes about. I hope this doesn't come about. I hope for your sake. I hope for my sake. We're talking about something that's being used as a verb. I'm doing it. I'm hoping. Okay. Hope from a biblical sense is different. As a student of scripture, I actually wish we had two different words. I actually wish we had a, a word hope that was a verb. Okay. So, oh, you're hoping something's going to happen. Okay. I'm with you. I got you on that. And then a different word for I have hope. It is a possession. It is a noun, a person, place, or thing. In fact, when it comes to the Bible, it's all three. Jesus is my hope. My hope is heaven. It is my possession. Without belief in God's promise, hope as a noun is just non-existent. The preacher now explains why some people use oaths in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. I think it's funny that it's put that way. Because I think of how many disputes only were really getting started when somebody made an oath or a promise. People's oaths are given to acquire trust from another person for the benefit of the swearer. The sworn oath is meant to purchase the trust from the one who's hearing it. Much of the time, though, we swear them for our benefit. Now, it's possible to swear them for the benefit of others. You've probably all experienced this. You've been trying to convince your child to do something. The child is not quite sure whether they want to do the thing. All right? They're standing there at the edge of the pool, and, you know, dad or mom's down in the water, and they're saying, jump, I'll catch you. All right? You're making a promise. You're not making a promise, though, for your benefit. You're making a promise for the child's benefit. You want them to have fun. You want them to find out what it's like to go flying into the water and dad step out of the way and you crash into the pool. <laughs> you want the child to understand some fun. So you're promising for their benefit, not your own. Quite often, though, we're trying to end the dispute for selfish reasons. I need the job. And I need you to buy what I'm selling. I need you to vote for me. I want something from you, so I'll promise something to you to secure your agreement. Often our words don't feel like enough, so then we invoke something that seems to add authenticity to the promise. But that's because we're arguing from a weak position. When, when you're in a place of weaknesses, of weakness, you really don't have a whole lot of options. You're not the one holding the cards. You're not the one with the power. And so a lot of times we struggle and strain to try to add a little bit to it. God's not coming from a weak position. When God makes a promise, he has no insecurities. He has no doubts. There's no possibility that his promise is not going to prevail. He's working in our best interest, and he knows that we're coming from weak, insecure, doubting worries. But he wants us to believe our answer for, believe his answer for our own benefit. So he reveals more of God's purpose in verse 17. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose 
even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. God's oath is for the benefit of those to whom the promise is being given. He wants us to understand who he is and what his motives are toward us. His purpose and his promise, they're clearly on display. He wants to show us more clearly than we currently understand how unchangeable his purpose is. God swears because we need it, not him. He knows we need to put promises in the, we tend to put promises in the uncertain column because we've experienced so many human promises and we know how so many of those end. O's that hid motives, passionate swearing that turned to ashes the minute the person had what they wanted. But this brings us to the second question that the preacher wants to answer. What's the probability of the promise? What's the chance this is really going to happen? How sure can I be of the promise that has been made? God's oaths are very different from the oaths of people. See, with human oaths, a long time ago, I learned with human oaths, there's some questions. When somebody starts promising something, there's some questions that you need to ask to help make sure that you've evaluated the person and the promise. Will they be around to guarantee the outcome of the promise? You ever been in one of those situations where a boss promised you something, but then he got a promotion and moved on, and when it came time for the promise to be fulfilled, he wasn't even there to do it. So one thing is, I need to know that if you're making me a progress, a promise, you're going to be around to make sure this thing happens. And also, do they have the authority to do what they're promising? Now, how many times I've asked that question and done a little bit of digging and found out you don't even have the right to be making the promise you're making. You don't have the authority to make it happen, regardless of what I do. And then the third one, just straight up, are they lying? Like, what's the motive for them making this promise? Does it actually include any concern or benefit of me? Or is the motive for the promise something that's really purely about them and they have a very good reason just to tell me something that's not true? God covers the first question. You remember the question? God covers the first question about <coughs> are you going to be around in Isaiah 43.10 as well as other places in Scripture. This is just one. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me and there will be none after me. I've covered it all the way from eternity past to eternity future. I will be there. I'm the only one that is going to be there. And what about the authority? I had to leave a job one time because I had been promised some stuff and then I performed to the expectations of the promise. And then we got to the point where it was time to be rewarded for that and was told, mm, sorry, the board won't let me do it. Well, during the job interview, you didn't talk about you having to get the board's permission. You made it sound like this was something that was already approved and agreed upon. And so after a while, when I realized that the board was never going to move, I did. 
God covers this too. Isaiah 43, 13. Also, from today on, I am he alone. None can rescue from my power. I act. Who can reverse it? I have the ultimate authority. There is nobody. This is just one of the places where we're told in Scripture that there is nobody, not even the nations, can thwart what God decides to do. When he sets about a purpose, he actually has all the authority necessary to bring it about. And what if they're just lying? What if the person swearing the oath is untrustworthy, doesn't have any integrity? God's integrity is unquestionable. Listen to what Numbers 23, 19 says. God is not a man that he might lie, nor a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? Those are rhetorical questions and the answer is no. God does not have the ability to lie. I mean, that sounds kind of weird to say, right? That's like that whole can't pick up the rock thing. God doesn't have the ability to lie. The person, who he is, actually excludes it. So why are God's oaths so much different than ours? Well, he doesn't swear them for his own benefit. He's eternal, and he's omnipotent, and he cannot lie. That makes his promises something to be held as a hope of possession. So let's return back to what God swore. All right? We've talked about why he swore, but let's talk about what he swore and what it means. The preacher actually echoes the words of God's integrity in verse 18. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. The probability of the promise is 100%. God is unchanging, he cannot lie, and he says our hope is a noun. The probability cannot be higher because there is none other like him. He's in the category unto himself. Psalm 115.3 says he's in the heavens and he does as he pleases. How good it must feel to be able to do completely as you please. And we serve a God that when we look at what, it has, what he's chosen to do, what has pleased him, is to create us, even the mess we have turned into. Even at the expense, he realized it was going to cost him. It pleased him to create us. This is hard to fathom. So now we move on to the question, who is the person of the promise? What are these two unchangeable things? I admit that, yeah, I read this growing up as a young person for years and years and years. And as I would read it, I would always get to this, what are the two unchangeable things? And I would go back and forth in the text trying to find the two unchangeable things, you know, and I couldn't find them. And I realized that it was because I had not really thought through the path the preacher was taking. I did not realize that he was getting to the point where he was going, hey, you know what we started talking about back in chapter four? Uh, four? 
You remember we were talking about Jesus as high priest? Well, let's go back to what I said to you then. He's pointing back to the quote that he has already given us from Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. So what are the two things? Well, Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus is an eternal high priest. But I mean, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be of the order of Melchizedek? It means you should come to church next week because Joel will tell you. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about today, okay? There's a lot more to say about Melchizedek, and I am so glad Joel is the one saying it. Okay, but what do we need to do with these two things today? What, where, where do I land with the fact that, okay, Jesus is of an order unlike any other, and it's eternal? Just what the preacher said. What did he say it was for? So that I could be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before me. Those two things. This is strong encouragement from God to me to seize what I have made available for you. Grasp it. Be greedy about it. Take it in. Guard it. Don't let anybody ever tell you anything any different. Jesus is not like the other high priest. Jesus is the person of the promise. He's of an order that sets him apart. He did not enter the order the way other priests entered. Other priests were chosen. Other priests went through some ceremony where everything got declared and maybe they got prayed over. Maybe it was in a special place. There were all sorts of things surrounding how they entered the priesthood, including who they were born to. See, Jesus entered the priesthood differently. He entered through the order, entered into the order through his own incarnation and the life that he lived and the torture that he suffered and the crucifixion that he went through and his very death, his burial and his resurrection. How many of the priests are going to sign up for priesthood if that's the way you get in? One. One and one alone. Our faith is built on the God-man Jesus Christ who did the unthinkable. He actually became our sin. He was willingly crucified and he died to defeat sin and death. And then he declared his victory by just getting up and walking out of the grave. And then he goes and he walks around a bunch of witnesses long enough that it's going to be really hard to deny the fact that he was raised. Now he's gone back to his father and he's taken his rightful place. But he's coming back here one day to put all this mess right. But in the meantime, he's making it clear he wants us to be encouraged. We've got a promise that is actually a possession that is ours to keep and he promises to do all the heavy lifting to help us keep it.
sometimes it can feel like hanging on to the promise is exhausting me. Like I'm, my strength is going to break and I'm going to drop it. I'll let it get away from me. See, that's where the really crazy good news comes in. I'm not the one that has to hang on. Even when I fall, he doesn't. Even when I let go, he doesn't. Even when I freak out and get scared, he doesn't let go. It's that whole image that we've talked about and seen before. I got a kid wrapped around me like an octopus, you know, and we're out walking. And something scares the kid out of his mind. And he looks like an armadillo in the headlights of a car, arms up and feet out and just scared. He's completely let go because he's freaking out. He's losing his mind. He doesn't go anywhere, though, because I had him. And then we look at Jesus kind of sheepishly and go, oh, sorry about that. And he goes, hey, I know. I know, but I'm still here with you. I still have you. That thing that shocked you, it didn't shock me. The thing that's got you worried and trying to figure out how you're going to deal with it, yeah, none of that is bothering me right now. The only thing I want is for you to have peace and calm. Right here in the middle of this thing that's going on. The preacher tells us how to use it in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. See, our world often just seems like shifting currents going every which way. They threaten to sweep us away from the rest and the peace and the calm. But the preacher's declaring that Christ's priestly order and the eternality of it, that's our anchor. Yeah, there are currents and they're pushing and they're pulling and they do threaten to rip us away. But the anchor that is Jesus Christ holds. I mean, it doesn't budge at all. It's not even like those tense moments in the movies, you know, where the, the thing is stuck in the concrete and you begin to see it rattle a little bit and, you know, and they're trying to decide, is this going to be a disaster or not? No, it's none of that. You look around there and all you get is just solid. There's no wiggle room. Jesus, do you have me? Of course I have you. See, he tore the veil that separated us from the place of God's presence. That big old heavy piece of carpet, I mean, that wasn't just like a curtain, like we have curtains. This is, this is a heavy piece of carpet hanging there in that opening. Jesus Christ tore it right in two and says, hey, you're all invited in. In fact, come in boldly. Come in here like you're meant to be here. Come in here like you're a child. Come in here like your father's willing to stop whatever he's doing and give you his attention. See, once a year, the human high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer up sacrifices. This is once a year, one guy gets to go behind that carpet. And so he goes back in there, but before he goes, they did something interesting. They tie a rope around his leg. Because if you have a heart attack while you're in there and you die, 
Nobody else can go in the Holy Holies to get you out. And we don't like the smell. So we're going to tie a rope around you to guarantee that if anything goes wrong, we pull you out. So here's the thing. That man's tether was anchored outside the presence of God. It was anchored to men standing on the outside who the very best they could offer him was just to drag him out and bury him. Jesus, our anchor, our hope, the one we're tied to, he tethers us into the presence of God. Our tether runs with him. The only thing we can do is be drawn closer he affirms this when he tells us finally. In verse 20, he affirms that this is what I'm referring to. You remember that thing I told you back in 14? I mean, in uh, chapter 4? Okay. Well, here's where I'm going to affirm that that's exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he's become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God has sworn his oath to clarify his promise. The probability of God fulfilling that promise is 100% because of who he is. He is that guy. Jesus is the subject and fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the true promise. The hope the preacher wants us to possess is the guarantee of eternal life with Jesus. And we can have it right now when we just come to recognize our helplessness and our inability to solve any of this, how badly we have sinned and rebelled, and the fact that we just, we don't have any way to fix it. And then we cry out to him, hey, I can't. And he said, well, then you're the exact person I'm looking for. The promise has been obtained by those who believe God. The promise is being obtained by those who follow Jesus. And the promise will be obtained by those who inherit the kingdom. So it is, as it often is with God, already and not yet.